Hi, and welcome to another episode of Integrated, the Community Paramedicine Podcast. And today I've got uh, Dr. Judith Welsh and Sean Lyons, who are the medical director and the operations manager for the Cleveland Clinic's uh, MIH program. So obviously one of those institutions that everybody's heard of and really looks to as a, as a leader and a thought leader in lots of different specialties. And really happy to have them on today talking about the work that they're doing in mobile integrated health there at the clinic. So thanks for coming on, folks. Dr. Welsh, um, welcome, Conchie. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in all of this. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I am the medical director for community paramedicine and urgent dispatch, and I'm also the associate chief experience officer for Cleveland Clinic, so I wear a lot of hats. Um, I'm an emergency physician by training. I've had 20 years of experience and have recently transitioned my clinical practice almost entirely to the practice of telemedicine with my community paramedics. Uh, that's a, <laughs> a bunch of work to cover there. And, and really the chief experience officer thing is something I definitely want to come back to because um, there, there seems to be a lot of intersection there that's really worth exploring. Yeah, we, we are big fans of talking about experience and ease in particular. And Sean has led some projects um, really kind of looking at how we provide care to our sickest of the sick and most fragile elderly. And he's kind of leveraged all the tools that we have in the office of patient experience. So I'll let him talk about that. Awesome. And Sean, you know, welcome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having us on. So, Sean, how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, so I was a paramedic working in the emergency department while I was in college. Uh, when I graduated, I was looking for something with a little bit more upward mobility, and I found this program. At the time, the program had a couple of paramedics essentially just kind of going and seeing patients um, with telehealth. Uh, so they were doing an exam and assessment and then holding an iPad and, and having a virtual physician uh, do an assessment with uh, out of a primary care doctor's office, essentially for homebound patients. So after about six months of doing that uh, with this team here, I started kind of pushing the envelope a little bit with what we're allowed to do and, and having discussions about how we can really just increase our scope um, up towards our full potential as paramedics and what we can do in home in terms of treatments and other visit types. Around that time, Dr. Welsh got involved and became our medical director and we've, we've really kind of run with the program and taken it from you know, four medics doing a few hundred visits a year to you know, where it is now, seeing about four different subspecialties as well as uh, still managing care and helping with um, this primary care doctor's office out of uh, the mobile physicians. Awesome. And so when did you folks get started? So this program officially started um, in 2017. So at the time it was two paramedics. Uh, there was a, a physician out of our main campus emergency department that was working with the team here with medical care at home, which is a doctor's office. Again, seeing at the time, I think they had about 1200 patients that were homebound. Now we have, I think 2400 patients that are homebound in the Cleveland area uh, that we provide care to at home. So from 2017 to 2019, uh, that team grew to four paramedics. And uh, in 2020, we started with some of the more specific uh, specialty programs. Okay, so I'm just gonna address the elephant in the room. You mentioned homebound patients, and it sounds like you're referring to things that uh, may have a lot of overlap with what we think of as the purview of home health. So how would you define the, the difference? You know, what's the, what's the problem that you're trying to solve and how or why do the community paramedics and the mobile integrated health team 
uh, provide something different that's not you know overlapping or conflicting with with traditional home health services really the answer to that is speed right so what we're able to do out of this doctor's office is have a patient call in just calling into their primary care doctor's office and report a concern, be a symptom concern. This could be coming in from, you know, a home health aide or a visiting uh, nurse, or it could be coming in from the patient's family member or the patients themselves. And our team of paramedics um, offers a service to them for urgent visits. So we're able to go out often same day and see a patient, uh, do triage and exam and assessment, and then connect with a virtual physician who can then place orders and uh, view the patient as well. So what we're able to offer this team, again, of homebound patients. So these are patients that are specifically triaged and allowed into the program based on various criteria um, that makes it unreasonable for them to be able to go and actually access primary care uh, in a traditional office. And it's also a factor of ease. Um, ease is really important for patients. If, if you make di things difficult, if you put up barriers to care, people aren't going to use your services. They're gonna end up in crisis and they're gonna end up in the emergency department. So this is an option for these folks who are, again, the most fragile of the fragile in our community to make it easy to get the care that they need in their home. Absolutely. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, the ideal MIH patient being those folks who are both socially and clinically vulnerable. And, you know, I know in our experience, the clinical vulnerability has actually been less of a factor than in social vulnerability. You know, it's all those, those factors, you know, we can call them social determinants of health, but we're really trying to individualize them to the, the patient and not just speak about it on a population health or community level. And you know, it's, it's, those, it's the transportation barriers, it's the access to healthy, fresh foods and all those other things. When those are difficult, their health suffers. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, and I think of that 2000 plus patients that we currently have in that specific program, I, I wanna say our average age is 87 uh, for those patients. Interesting. Now, do you think that is a, a selection bias, if you will, due to the practice where the referrals are coming from? Not necessarily. I think that's just um, the patient population here that is in the most need of these services. I mean, pa patients can uh, go on and into the Cleveland Clinic system and request uh, referral to our services or our referrals come from other primary care doctor's offices within the Cleveland Clinic system. Uh, that's probably the main entry point. And I think typically that's that's kind of the, the lane. So it goes from a patient has been seen by this primary care doctor, let's say for the last 20 years, and they're having trouble coming in and, and actually making those visits and those appointments, then that primary care doctor could say, you know, this patient is not really able to access our services anymore. I think we need to give them something in the home. And then they give a, access to our services and we're able to send our team of paramedics, nurse practitioners and primary care physicians out to their house. Excellent. So patients can self-refer to your team? They can. Well, to the medical care at home office, uh, then our office staff would triage that patient and assess their, their needs. And the primary care doctor would go out, perform an intake visit and decide whether or not they are a good fit for our program in terms of what their needs are. Wow, excellent. That's, that's not a common thing that we hear very often. Um, so, the way your community paramedics interact with patients, is there is there an episode of care that involves multiple visits over a period of time, or is it kind of a one-off uh, in order to address a more discreet need? 
No, there definitely is. Um, I, again, I mentioned we, we're actually really working with about five different programs. Uh, one of them is a high-risk transitional care program where our community paramedics go out and see patients who are considered to be high risk for readmission over the course of a month following discharge. And that typically is three or four visits from the community paramedic, uh, just helping them with any access to care issues that they might have and doing assessments um, on a weekly basis. Otherwise, for our patients uh, within the medical care at home office, we typically do see the same patients over and over again. You know, if, if it's a, a need, we need to administer some sort of medication in the house, then often those follow-up visits are made by the same paramedic. Um, we kind of work out of geographical zones, so the medics typically do uh, establish relationships with those more at-need patients. Excellent. The other thing that's interesting is that our paramedics also work in a, a collaboration with our nurse practitioners. So we have an urgent dispatch team of nurse practitioners. So there are four paramedics and six NPs um, who work together and, you know, kind of share labor. And so our paramedics will do the skilled piece in terms of procedures, placing IVs, helping with assessments and the nurse practitioners will do more of the, you know, high level um, plan of care determinations. And then they'll kind of work together to figure out what does this patient need? How do we, how do we meet their needs? And, and what do we do to get them the help that they require to keep them out of the emergency department in the hospital? And those patients within the urgent dispatch program are coming again from multiple different groups. Uh, actually, any PCP within the clinic clinic system can put in an order for that referral. It's not just coming from our uh, medical care at home office. So we're seeing quite a number of different patients, uh, different patient populations within that program. Sure. So I, one of the more challenging questions I know for my team has always been, what does discharge look like and what does success look like? Yeah, how do, at what point would you say that patient is successfully, I think, resolved as far as their MIH episode of care, even if um, they're, they're going to require other types of care, you know, to be ongoing? Like, what is, what is a successful you know, termination of care or, or transition from your team to someone else look like for you? Yeah, so I, again, that kind of goes down to what, what patient are we seeing? What program is this? So um, for our medical care at home patients, they're never really discharged. You know, we're working with their primary care uh, physician. So if, if we are going out for a series of follow-up appointments to see them, you know, say they're having a chef exacerbation, um, a successful into that in terms of our team's involvement would just be that their physician, you know, deems that they don't need any follow-up visits. Um, for the high-risk transitional care, you know, that, that is more um, structured in that there's a, there's a date range. We're going to see you for this many times, and we're kind of turning them over to their primary care physician at the end of that. Uh, and that really is um, not necessarily dependent on acuity. I mean, we have seen patients for five or six visits if we felt that they needed it. And then for other, other patient types that we do, um, like we're currently doing a pilot with a pediatric group, uh, we're seeing them as needed. So if they're oncologist, you know, in terms that we need weekly visits with the paramedic, then we're doing that. If, if they think that they can switch down to every other week or they don't need home visits at all, then again, that's being kind of driven by those physicians. Sure. So the, I guess the taskings are really coming from a, another entity that's really responsible for that patient. Exactly. Okay. Um, so one of the things, again, I'll encourage you to go 
back and look at those camps draft standards, and I know I mentioned them before we started recording, uh, one of the things that we were trying to figure out as a way to you know, essentially stratify the different programs, not necessarily in a hierarchical fashion. And if you're familiar with like their critical care ground and, and the aeromedical standards that have been around for years, um, they really appear to be hierarchical. And we were trying to get away from that because MIH programs, A, most of them are relatively new. Um, the, the specialty is certainly evolving. And we were trying to figure out a way to describe broadly the different types of programs that exist. And right now we've got two different versions that are out there. The, they're nominally called type one and type two programs. Those are placeholder names. Maybe we keep them, who knows. Um, but one, the type one programs are really those that are focused on more discrete interventions that are being tasked or driven by someone else. It sounds very much like what you're describing here. Um, and that appears to be the more common model that's out there. And how would you um, respond or how, are you familiar with any of the programs that fall into what we would call a type two, where the MIH program itself becomes um, responsible broadly for patient outcomes and goals, and they're not necessarily functioning just at the direction, but rather in collaboration with a multidisciplinary team, um, but where the MIH program holds some of that, that outcomes responsibility? Yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with that. I think that from what I've seen is more common in rural settings. Um, potentially municipality-based, maybe based out of a fire department, at least that's my familiarity with it. Um, I think that it's definitely, I love the fact that, that you know, the, those paramedics are, are maybe more responsible and, and are taking a bigger role overall in the patient's care. Um, I think it all is also very helpful though to have a program similar to ours where we have access to virtual physicians and we have access to nurse practitioners that are uh, seeing those patients and helping to manage the issues. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think in the, the standards and really in the conversations we've had around drafting the, those things, the, the broad responsibility can't be uh, laid solely in the lap of, of the community paramedics. You know, those programs that are really broadly responsible for outcomes have to be multidisciplinary teams um, with, you know, physician or clinician leadership and, and probably some other specialties and disciplines involved. Um, but it sounds like, again, within Cleveland Clinic, you've got lots and lots of resources out there. And this has been a way for you to engage some of those resources, maybe more efficiently for a particular group of patients. Yeah, so that urgent dispatch group with the nurse practitioners, um, that is a fairly recent thing that developed out of a pilot that we were doing just with the paramedics. Um, so we were sending paramedics out with that virtual physician assistance to go and do interventions in the home. And obviously it just saves time if the APP is the one that's going or taking the medications with them. Um, so that kind of expansion has been really cool to see because as Dr. Welsh mentioned, we're working really in concert with them and, and for complicated cases, often sending, you know, potentially an APP and a medic together uh, to go see patients and, and working similar to a crew within like critical care transport or maybe life flight would work um, that you have, you know, the APP is doing more of the documentation and, and going through that part of the visit while the medic is kind of doing the work uh, and, and doing the visit that way. So it's really neat to watch that grow. Um, I have a lot of uh, excitement about where that's going to go in the future just for our team. Again, it is it is great to have the access to those resources. I, you know, a lot of the times uh, we maybe take for granted that we have we have the resources like the virtual team here, but I'm happy to see. Uh, I think that this could be a similar um, a type of program could be something that could be modeled uh, in other community areas, really having that telehealth physician um, working with the paramedics seems to work well. 
uh, in terms of getting orders placed and doing things, we're able to see a lot of patients at the same time. Oh, that's great. So technical question, and maybe this is Dr. Welsh, um, with the APPs going out to the home, how are you navigating the dispensary laws um, related to leaving meds with patients versus just administering? Because I know that's something that we ran into as a challenge a number of years ago and haven't really come up with a good solution for. So we, we don't leave meds with patients. We'll go out on sequential days. So let's say somebody needs a course of antibiotics and they need to get a dose every single day. Um, the APP will come. Um, Sean actually developed a suitcase of medications and they carry everything from ANSEF to Zofran in this suitcase. And they'll go and order and administer the medications that are necessary and then pack it all up, bring it back to the office, secure it um, in our pharmacy that's locked, and then go back out the next day and do it all again, if that's what the patient needs. And we've gone out, I think we had one patient that needed a full seven day course to treat a pseudomonas infection that was pan resistant. Um, and so we just went out every single day until they were better and just did what they needed to have done. And I think to a certain extent, COVID really accelerated the, impact of our program because we have so many patients now that you know under no circumstances will go to the hospital. Um, we had one elderly patient with dehydration who looked me in the eye on telemedicine and said, I would rather die than go to the emergency department. So just leave me here and I'll die. And I, I looked at them and I said, you don't have to die. Today is not your day. We can treat you. Um, and Sean immediately started an IV in that patient and got the fluids going. And then we sent the nurse practitioner for another four days um, until the patient's kidney function had normalized. They were adequately hydrated. And on the last day of the last visit, the nurse practitioner, Dan, um, went to the patient's house and you know, asked them, how are you feeling? And, and the patient looked at him and said, I feel so good, I could do the twist. And that's when I knew that the impact of this program was real and important. Um, and I agree, I, I echo what Sean says. I think that this is you know, our great opportunity to change healthcare as we know it, right? We don't have to send every single patient who's ill to an emergency department to get care. We can bring the emergency department to them, or at least maybe 75, 80% of the tasks done in an emergency department for non-critically ill patients, we can accomplish in the home. Um, that's so exciting to me. And I, I look forward to doing more. That's so true. Just we've all known it. We've all said it for many, many years that the vast majority of people who call 911 to access that emergency, that safety net, um, many of them don't need a physician. Uh, most of them don't need an emergency department and they sure as heck don't need an expensive ride to an emergency physician and an emergency department, but they need something and they don't know how else to get it, or they're tired of trying to figure it out on their own. And they know when they call 911, people have to listen to them. They know when they go to the emergency department, even if it's not the right place, it's on their time, it's on their schedule, it's available 24 hours a day. It's that ease of access thing. You know, it's at that point they're done. You know, they're, they're done trying to figure it out on their own and they're gonna just call and make somebody else figure it out for them. Yeah, there are so many barriers in place to people getting the care that they need. And it, it's really a frustration. We have, you know, the most advanced healthcare system in the world, right? We can transplant faces. We can transplant a uterus. You know, we can basically put any body part in you that you need and save your life. But when it comes to just getting regular healthcare, 
it's really hard for people, right? You know, just incredibly difficult. I know. And it's frustrating just picking up the phone and sitting on hold with a call center to make an appointment with your doctor. I mean, that's barrier right there. You know, we just don't make it easy. And this is a way that we can ease care so that people get what they need so that they don't get to that crisis point. Um, that preserves their health and really gives them incredible value. And we can do um, with our dyad of APPs and community paramedics, we can deliver, you know, just maybe just short of inpatient health care. You know, we don't have the extensive monitoring, but in terms of the things that are really critical to make you better, right, the key interventions, we can do that in the home for a fraction of the price of hospitalization and without the same kind of risk. Right. So without the risk of iatrogenic injury, without the risk of well, the nosocomial infection risk with COVID is really one of the big drivers that that we talked about a lot over the past year. Patients don't want to go to the hospital because our most clinically and socially vulnerable folks out in the community are the ones who could least afford the infection. Absolutely. That, and, you know, when you're in the hospital, you don't get the rest you need. The hospital is not an environment of care that's really conducive to healing. Right. There's you mean noise helicopters, on. sirens, and uh, morning rounds are not good for letting people rest and relax. <laughs> I remember, as a resident, we were like waking people up at four and five in the morning, you know, just to look at, you know, take their band aids off. It's, <laughs> that's not a place to heal. Right. And so, if you can heal at home, that's really valuable. Right. So, it wasn't too many generations ago where that was the norm, that hospitalization in a facility was really abnormal unless you lived in a large city somewhere and, and came from money. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, that, that really wasn't, I mean, that was less than a century ago. No, that's really true. So, so you, know, you mentioned value, and I, I, we could touch on that if we want to go down the business rabbit hole, but really, how are you measuring success and um, more importantly, what type of informatics systems or, or procedures or processes do you put in place in order to support um, tracking these things, measuring these things, and, and hopefully ultimately being able to report and publish on it? Because please, we need more publications that are related to our work. <laughs> yeah, so we've actually done a couple of uh, research projects internally that we've presented at different quality events. Um, and I definitely want to get something published in a more mainstream environment. I think we have a lot of data for that. Mostly what I've looked at so far, readmission rates and emergency visit uh, utilization for those high risk for readmission folks and for our medical care at home people. Um, we're also looking at some um, just access metrics and some patient satisfaction metrics with um, the pediatric group. So I, I, we do have a lot of data uh, with the high risk for readmission. I was able to demonstrate that our visits significantly put put a high risk population uh, well below the average uh, Cleveland Clinic readmission rate. Um, so to kind of using that and looking at the amount of patients that we had in that program, we were able to demonstrate a significant cost savings there. And, and that's one of the things I know you mentioned for community paramedics, it's always kind of the problem of how do you how do you keep the lights on? And that's one way that we're doing it is just demonstrating value um, outside of being able to actually bill. Sure, I mean, there, there's so many things that I think all of this foundational work that's being done across the country is eventually going to inform in terms of more mature revenue models, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, I think all of us that have the opportunity uh, to work within larger integrated health systems can generate data that will help support a lot of our colleagues who are more like municipally based in, in 
uh, either local EMS agencies or even, you know, those, those multi-role fire-based services or what have you. Like they just don't have the same access to uh, patient outcomes data and longitudinal uh, experience that, that we do. Um, so where are you charting? Are you charting um, as part of the patient's record within your normal EHR or how are you guys, how did you solve that, that documentation challenge? Yeah, we, we are, we are, we're using the patient's um, chart within the Cleveland Clinic system. That is the, I think the biggest advantage that we have over potentially like a municipally uh, based EMS system, right? That without that access to the patient's chart, I would be fairly ineffective. You know, going to do a, a follow-up visit for a patient that was recently discharged after, you know, a massive reconstructive surgery with one of our um, post-surgical pilots. You know, if I couldn't get in there and read every single chart and all the notes and their discharge summary, I, I just wouldn't be very effective in, in being able to see and catch problems. Um, and doing post-hospital visits for our medical care at home you know, patients, we have to be able to go in and, and see that. So I think that's one disadvantage that maybe fire departments have. Um, but for our team, you know, we, we are all um, very used to that being a, a big part of the job is the documentation, not just from us, but the chart diving, like I said, of, of the different things that have been happening in that patient, you know, maybe over the last couple of weeks since our visit. Sure. And, and oh, sorry, about, go ahead. I was going to say, when we think about particularly that uh, reconstructive surgery pilot that Sean has initiated, Sean also is integrated as part of the team. So he goes to the bedside with the care team prior to the patient's discharge. And they look at the wound together. He shakes the patient's hand. He meets them and greets them and establishes a relationship. And so I think that's the piece that in addition to having the documentation readily available, that really makes a big difference. Certainly. And I, I don't want to undervalue the, the flip side, the documentation that, that we do is incredibly valuable to the other clinicians who are involved in that patient's care. And, you know, the feedback we've gotten over years and in speaking with a number of other programs who do have the ability to document in a way that it's visible to say primary care, other specialists, um, you know, case management and, and the rest of the folks, them seeing and hearing and reading our notes and understanding what we're observing in the field, the assessments that we're doing, um, the conversations that we're having, influences their understanding of the patient, allows them to make better, more well-rounded, more appropriate plans of care that the patient can really buy in on. You know, the patient feels like somebody's listening to them and this is really about their goals and not just artificial ones that are being applied to them. And we spent a lot of time on that too, because um, when I started, we found that there were opportunities to train the community paramedics and how to document like a clinician. So initially they really started out doing very typical EMS documentation, very brief, not quite as helpful as a full clinician note. And so we spent a lot of time going through charts, reviewing them together, looking at them as a team and training on how to document like a clinician. So my goal for this team was always to have them operate as peers and colleagues to the physicians, to the APPs, to the nurses, to the you know discharge transitional care management teams to really function as part of a peer in that team rather than something completely separate. Absolutely. You know, it, and I, I hear you on the amount of time it's taken to help developing the, um, the writing and communication skills from that, that discrete, concise, objective assessment that we're so familiar with in the emergency setting um, to something more broad. 
And that's a lot of, you know, what we train our staff on, you know, from their initial intensive training and ongoing training to the point where we were hiring, um, writing coaches to run clinics for us from say like the, one of the graduate schools of social work nearby, you know, help our, our medics become more comfortable and confident in their, in their writing, in their professional documentation. And it, it's an ongoing process for sure. So going back to training and education, if someone is hired onto your program, what does that onboarding look like? What does that process look like to transition someone from, um, I'm assuming a, a relatively experienced traditional role paramedic, whether it's medical transportation or emergency response uh, into a community paramedic? How do, you, how do you make that transition or help them through that transition? Yeah, it's a lot. So it's about six weeks is how I have the program set up right now. Um, and they will spend time shadowing, obviously, the other paramedics in the field, but also the physicians in the telemedicine office. They're going to do some rounds with different physicians and specialties downtown at our, our Cleveland Clinic main campus, um, doing things like spending a day with a geriatric specialist doing geriatric assessments, um, you know, a day in the CHF clinic with an APP, uh, learning those assessment and, and more uh, special, you know, observation skills. Um, we have them shadow the other APPs that are in the field uh, with our various programs with medical care at home and also with urgent dispatch and also uh, shadowing the physicians uh, doing house calls. So um, kind of bringing that all together, there's, there's three or four days of more classroom work um, just with the documentation like we were talking about and really assessing all of the visit types that we have. I have um, that kind of laid out and, and test patients uh, and scenarios where we kind of walk people through, how would you handle this? How would you handle that? Who would you call in this situation? And then just a lot of documentation and test patient encounters. So, you know, this is the visit type that we're going to. We're going to see a patient who called in with UTI symptoms go, right? And then we have a bunch of questions and things laid out for them uh, in doing that documentation. So we, we actually just onboarded a couple of people recently and, and that program seemed to work very well. Uh, they're out in the field now, but it, it is a challenge. You know, if you take someone who was working in ER versus someone who was just in a, an ambulance or working for a fire department, um, it, it's been our experience that people that don't have ER medic experience are kind of disadvantaged, mostly because of that documentation portion. And uh, familiarity with meds, that's something that we've found, you know, is, is challenging. Um, in a primary care setting, we need to have a lot more familiarity with chronic care medications than uh, most emergency department medics are really aware of, or definitely fire department medics. You know, if you think about a paramedic um, training course, there's, they kind of touch on medications, but mostly it's just the meds that medics are actually carrying. Um, so kind of spending a couple of, of hours going over different medication types and classes and figuring out, you know, what all these things mean. And when we're doing medical or medication reviews in the patient's houses, um, we need to be familiar with all these things. It's funny. I hear that feedback a lot that, uh, wow, I should have paid more attention in college in pharmacology and in psychology. Like, I think I'm going to go back and, and study quite a bit more of that. So do you folks work with a pharmacist at all? Do you have a pharmacist embedded or integrated into your team? Or is this a consulting relationship that you've managed to establish? So we have a pharmacist that we work with at a local family health center pharmacy uh, here in the, in the city that our team is based out of. Um, 
typically if the paramedics are going to be taking meds, it's only medications that the um, pharmacist, you know, is prescribing and potentially sending to the patient's house. You mentioned that earlier, that that's kind of an issue like with the APPs. Um, and we do utilize a pharmacy that ships medications to the house, like at home infusion pharmacy. Um, so occasionally I will work with pharmacists um, as needed. And it, it's mostly one that's based out of a local pharmacy within our system. We don't have one embedded specifically in our team. Sure. I, yeah, I was curious about the technical aspects of the dispensing versus prescribing and then delivering. It's, it's, it's nuanced and it's unfortunately one of those, those stumbling blocks that I think some programs have run into, uh, including ours. Hey, Joan, I want to get back to your onboarding question. Um, at the Cleveland Clinic, we have an extensive onboarding process that includes understanding the philosophy of how we care for patients at the Cleveland Clinic. And we truly believe that patients come first. Um, in addition to all the onboarding training that Sean described, we also do very specific patient communication skills training. And so we have a class called Ready to Communicate um, that is the foundation for relationship-based communication. And that's where I, where I find the paramedics really shine. They develop very close relationships with patients that are based on these communication skills. And they just kind of spread this incredible empathy everywhere they go. And they get a lot more out of patients communicating with empathy than they would not using those skills. And so that's a key part of our training. We train on motivational interviewing for change. And we also train on this relationship-based skill set um, and I think really kind of helps them do more with less. You, you said the words that I was hoping to hear, motivational interviewing. You know, I could say looking at dozens of programs now over the last almost decade, you know, just even five or six years ago, I think if you saw one CP program or one MIH program, you'd probably seen one. Um, but over the last probably five or six years, looking around the country, you're starting to see successful programs kind of stand out. And, and really become apparent that this is a program that has demonstrable documented success that they can really point to some strength, some evidence that it, we're not just telling a good story. We really can show you that we're doing well. And there are some common elements that are starting to tease out from the noise in the background and programs that focus on training CPs as part of that advanced development in communication skills, um, specifically motivational interviewing, and because I don't think there's another a structured model that's being taught commonly, but those advanced communication skills and, and motivational interviewing really are a defining factor for success programs as far as we can see. How much am I training are they getting and, and how are they, um, I guess, going through the mentored part of that? Yes, yeah, so we have an eight-hour class here at the Clinton Clinic that um, providers take. We've put the paramedics through that I was really fascinated with that class when I took it about two years ago. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of kind of follow-up training, at least from our communications department on that, but it is a very intensive class. There's a lot of like role-playing um, and it was really cool for me, you know, at the time I was the only obviously paramedic in this course. I'm just sitting there with, I think there was a couple of psychologists, a couple of uh, inpatient physicians. Um, it was, it was really neat to kind of do all these patient care role-playing exercises with them. And I learned a lot just from their bedside manner and their experiences. But the course that we've developed within that ready uh, class, I think there's three classes that we've put them through. So the motivational interviewing is one, and then there's a foundations of healthcare communication class. And then there's, I think the name is something change related 
it's or communicating pain our foundations of communication talking about pain with patients sure and dr welsh you mentioned mi and change talk so are the cps actually utilizing mi to elicit change talk and kind of using it more as that therapeutic intervention or are they focused on it more as an assessment methodology you know, I think it depends on the patient. Um, one of my key things is smoking cessation, particularly with anybody who continues to smoke and is on oxygen or has a diagnosis of COPD. So the medics will go into the home and if they see cigarettes and oxygen, or if they know they're treating a patient with COPD, that's something that they will kind of go and attack right away, you know, in the most empathic way possible. Um, in addition to that, we do a lot of advanced care planning and we talk a lot about palliative medicine and hospice with patients. And those are really difficult interventions to have, right? Particularly when there's denial, when there's lack of information, when there's confusion and high emotion, those situations can be very, very challenging. And the medics approach those also with motivational interviewing techniques and with great deal of empathy to make those interactions as you know, seamless and painless as possible. And for me as a telehealth physician, it makes it really easy and makes me more um, it, it kind of saves me time because the medic has already started the conversation and teed it up. And all I have to do is kind of come in at the end and just, you know, slam dunk the basket, <laughs> you know, the basketball into the basket. Um, because Sean and his team are so good at doing that. Um, it makes me look good and it makes me more efficient. Oh, that's awesome. How much are, say, the medics being front-loaded, some of the didactic and, and theoretical and conceptual background behind that around like change theory and, and you know, whichever model you're looking at, you know, chronic care versus trans-theoretical, you know, the, the work that the Brashakis folks did. Like, are, are you really loading this into a, the, the CPs as they come on board so that they're, they're thinking about it as a clinician in full command of it, or is it really more technique-based? I think we focus more on the practicalities. You know, what you know, what do you see? How do you identify when this is the time for this particular technique? And then how do you go about doing it? And so it's a far more practical and less theoretical um, kind of construct. And that's kind of just sort of my um, my preference in everything is, you know, not to make it too difficult. You know, let's just look at, you know, how do we put tools in our toolbox and then you know, grab them out when it's time to deploy. Sure. And, and that's actually really more of a personal question because that is something that we've been working through uh, for a number of years now. We, we've included MI training and, and change theory as part of our, our intensive, kind of that front load of information for a while, but we've, we've been trying to strike the right balance between the two. You know, like how much theoretical knowledge do they really need to understand the why for this approach and how much do we need to focus on um, how to do it and, and really trying to guarantee that they're also going to get some mentored experience um, with another experienced practitioner, uh, especially experienced in MI before we totally cut them loose on their own. And it's a, it's a tough balance to strike. Um, have you done or considered any work with say standardized patients, um, the same types that we'd use for say your, your step exams, um, but using those of the CPs? Cause I'd say we've, we've done that for a number of years in this area and have found a lot of value in it um, though. It does come with some costs and some constraints. Yeah. We use standardized patients as part of 
the communications training. Um, and that's really where the role play comes in. But in terms of clinical standardized patients, we don't, we're, again, we're a small unit. Um, we're very practical. And so we kind of learn while doing and learn by observing. And you're in a great place with a lot of different opportunities and a lot of venues of care to do so. So absolutely, that's great stuff. So I would say a couple, I guess, wrap up questions. If you were to give advice to someone standing up a program um, or or Dr. Welsh, especially for you, if you were communicating with, say, an EM trained physician who's a a more traditional EMS medical director who's been asked uh, to step into a physician leadership role for an MIH program, what advice would you give them? I think number one, you have to choose your medics carefully. Um, Somebody who has done a lot of just you call, we haul for a long time may need to change their focus and their efforts. And so I have trained my team to think like clinicians. They work with me. I've taught them to think like me. I've trained them to think like a clinician rather than to just think like, you know, an EMS provider right? We're not just managing crisis, we're managing the whole patient. The other thing is to focus on communication, particularly when it comes to empathy. And that's a little bit different too. Although I think, you know, EMS providers have to be empathic and they have to take great care of patients pre-hospital, that long-term connection that we have as primary care providers, I think is a little bit different than that. And I think the third thing is you have to invest in your people. This is not just a, you know, just a real quick fix. Um, We have done monthly grand rounds training. We've spent hours together Uh, a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, we won a grant through the Cleveland Clinic chief of staff and our team went to a conference um, where that was like an essentially an urgent and emergent care conference that was focused on advanced practice providers and all my medics went and they learned to think like providers and to think through these complex medical journeys that patients have. And so focusing on investing in your people and listening to them. So I think what Sean kind of alluded to at the beginning was, you know, we started out as kind of a small group where the medics were essentially just facilitating telehealth visits. And what he, what he didn't say was at one point he turned to me and he said, you know what, I'm really bored, Judy. I want to do more. I'm not being fully utilized. We're not using our, ourselves to the top of our certification. I want to do something different. And, and I looked at him and I'm like, well, what would you like to do? And he came up with like a dozen great ideas that over the next two and a half years have become huge projects and have really come to fruition. And so I think you have to trust your people, you have to listen to them, and then you have to focus on what matters most and, and how can you solve the problems that are out there. Absolutely. And it sounds like you've helped foster an environment where I think experimenting and innovation is encouraged. So that's a huge step forward for a lot of groups. And I, public safety sometimes struggles with being uh, an innovation incubator. And obviously the Cleveland Clinic has a well-known reputation for being that. So yeah, philosophically, that's who we are at the Cleveland Clinic. And I'm really gratified by the fact that we have incredible leadership at the clinic that has invested in us financially and has invested in us in, you know, philosophically that I can come up with crazy ideas with Sean. You know what? We're going to go give IV fluids in people's homes using paramedics, you know, really kind of wild stuff. And they say, hey, you know what? 
do it safely, have a good quality control, make sure you follow the laws and standard operating procedure, make sure that you have the right protocols in place, make sure you have quality assurance plans in place so that you know that your team is functioning in the right way. And, and yeah, go ahead and do that. Let's let's see if that works. And you know what? It always does. Um, it, I, I'm really lucky. I'm really gratified. Sean has been an amazing partner in this work. Um, and I, I don't think we would be anywhere near as successful without all the work he's done. That's great to hear. So Sean, almost the same question for you, you know, in your role as an operations manager for a program like this, um, especially one living in a really innovative environment, what advice would you give to someone tasked in a similar role, you know, just getting started? You know, one simple thing that I would I would add to that is that we need to continue to work on outreach. Uh, it is really important for the departments in your areas, um, for the other maybe the paramedic programs you know, that, that teach in your area, to come up to speed on what community paramedicine is and what you do. You know, the first time that we called 911 for a patient that, you know, was acuity level was too great to stay at home. You should have seen the look on the medic's face when they showed up. And I had, you know, a point of care lab testing device and I already had a basic metabolic panel and an IV started and fluids already going and just did a handoff to them and said, hey, I already called the called the ER and, and we already talked to the attending there. Um, they had no idea what was going on. You know, the, the confusion is kind of comical just because I know what I would have been like just a number of years ago if I, that had been my EMS run. Um, so I've utilized a position where I teach uh, at a local community college, teach paramedic class. And I've spoken at a handful of other paramedic classes in the area. Uh, I've, you know, one, one benefit of COVID was that everybody was kind of teaching on Zoom. So I could get on and just give updates. This is what we're doing. This is what community paramedicine means. Uh, here and, and what we're trying to accomplish and talk to students and really normalize this uh, as a as a part of our field, you know, as an option for people. Uh, and also I've gone and done CE at various local fire departments and gotten them kind of up to speed on what's going on. And there's been a lot of interest there. So I would encourage anyone who's starting a program or anyone who's currently, you know, running a, a community medicine program to really pay some attention to outreach and make sure that the departments in your area know what's going on. Um, I know that, you know, the chief, like a local fire, you know, fire chief association meeting that you might get some pushback, but it's a good place to start and go and talk to people and just explain that this is kind of the future. Uh, I think this is the future of EMS and this is a really great thing. And most people are very excited about it. And Sean, speaking of COVID, we didn't even talk about everything you've done with COVID related care with vaccination and swabbing procedures. Maybe we just give them some context around that too. Yeah. Sure. So our, our team has been extremely busy over the last year. You know, I was walking past and I guess it was February, maybe of 2020, walking past an office and a, a couple of our uh, leadership here at the clinic were, were talking about what we were going to do and how COVID was going to affect us. You know, and, and this was maybe the first week of February. And I stopped in and I said, hey, guys, you know, we have a team of trained paramedics who are out in the field. Um, they could do field testing. You know, we, we already have them trained to do nasal swabs. They already do it for the flu. Let's let's get them trained. And that's at least an option if it does come to America, right? Because this was at a point where we weren't even thinking that way. And then a couple of weeks later, my phone rang and uh, here we are. So our, our team did municipally based um, testing. So big, huge events at 
um, a couple of different local companies for their employees. We did it for um, a handful, I think maybe 10 uh, skilled nursing facilities where we would do all of their employees. I mean, there were times our team of paramedics were swabbing three, 350 people in a day. Um, we went in and did uh, rapid testing events for facilities that had outbreaks um, and did training for their staff to get them up to speed uh, and really able to handle testing on their own once they got their own rapid machines and were able to do that and kind of take it over from there. Um, I think total, our team of four community paramedics to date have done about 2,500 COVID swabs in the field for homebound patients uh, who were symptomatic, for homebound patients that were coming in for a procedure and needed that pre-op test. That was something that was extremely important, giving them access to those surgeries uh, where they wouldn't have been able otherwise. You know, they were relying on an ambulance to take them into the clinic for the surgery. That wasn't possible to get that twice in one week and get them tested. So our team was able to go out and do that. Uh, we drove all over the state of Ohio chasing down those uh, pre-op swabs for probably about six months. That there. sounds huge, not just for the patients, but also for the system. I know, you know, it's a big conversation among hospital systems about, um, among other things, just simply lost revenue around elective surgeries and the people who are experiencing some negative consequences from delaying stuff that may not have technically been emergent, but did not need to get kicked down the road for, you know, months or a year. And I think the even greater impact um, was that Sean's method of mass testing was then operationalized and refined by continuous improvement. And then he was able to bring that operations plan and share it with federally qualified health centers that then took it and then scaled it to a regional approach. Um, it, I, that I think is probably one of the greatest impacts that we've had. And I think in addition to that, the COVID vaccination plans that Sean operationalized and then implemented were really impressive as well. Yeah, for the vaccines, we partnered with our group of uh, nurse practitioners. Um, when Johnson & Johnson became available in that first couple months of giving vaccines, our team got tasked with giving 800 doses in one week. Um, so I'd already started a program where we were giving just a couple vials uh, of Pfizer at the time to our homebound patients. That's all I could get from pharmacy. So we had our medics going around a couple days a week and doing that. And then all of a sudden we had about three days notice and we needed to give those 800 doses. So we figured it out. You know, we worked with pharmacy very closely. We worked with our scheduling team here in the office and our community paramedics and APPs and we did it. We gave actually about 100 or 850, I think 852 doses in uh, six days. Um, and we're still, you know, chasing out some of those patients that are high risk and some other, you know, primary care patients in the Cleveland Clinic system that uh, our team was notified that they weren't able to get a vaccine. So we've been able to be involved with that. We also did some work with our testing centers in the drive-through, helping them get started and, and helping man that. So it's been quite, quite a ride over the last year. And our, our team has really been at the forefront of a lot of the efforts in the field. It sounds like it. And you know, obviously you just kind of took a vacation while everybody else sorted things out. And now that it's calming down, you can kind of come back and yawn and stretch and say, okay, so how can we help? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, great stuff. Anything else that you feel like would be helpful to anybody else getting started or struggling through that, that evolution and that growth and that transition, you know, in the programs that, especially, you know, we know COVID, provided the impetus for a lot of different areas and services to start something. 
and it was really focused on COVID. And now as things are starting to get a little bit better, we're definitely not done yet. Um, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we sustain this? How do we sustain the type of work that we've been doing? And so any, any advice you would have for those folks before we close this out? I think find a problem to solve. You know, what is the most burning platform in your environment? Doc, and that- I, I think I'm in love with you because I, <laughs> I say that over and over and over again. And I find that that's a question that never gets asked is right? a lot of people focus on what they can do and not what problem they're trying to solve. Right. I mean, that's how you become indispensable, you know, and I think that's what Sean did so incredibly well is that when COVID became a big problem, nobody knew how to solve it. And he was able to identify, you know, what can we do to bring value and to solve this particular problem? And then he's got this really great analytical mind where he will think through stepwise. How do I get from point A to point B and do every single step perfectly to operationalize this? And I think you need to have a good operational mind for that. You have to have a good, you know, kind of continuous improvement approach and, and you also have to have a good problem to solve. And if you've got those three things, you're going to be very, very successful. Sure. That's, that's a, it's a great piece of advice. And it's one that I, th- I think has come up on most of the recent episodes we've recorded. Just successful programs found problems that needed to be solved and then figured out how CPs and MIH team were the best suited to solve that problem. Uh, instead of becoming redundant. And, and yeah. that combination, that focus and that approach leads to success. I would say think outside the box. You know, so the first specialty pilot that we launched was with the head and neck cancer group. And I was like, okay, problem. Their patients post facial reconstructive surgeries or airway reconstructive surgeries are going home. Their caregivers are thinking that something's wrong, taking them to a local ED where the physician has no idea what to do, has never seen a surgery like this before, oftentimes out in the community, and then are shipping them downtown, waiting for a consult the next day with their surgeon, and then finding at least half the time that nothing's actually wrong. You know, these are people with um, flaps in place and other various fairly complicated things. Um, So we're ED visits and then admissions that end up being not a big deal. So the answer was, well, train a paramedic, go in and spend several weeks, you know, shadowing inpatient, shadowing in the outpatient clinic, really learning these, uh, what, what these flaps look like and what the surgeries look like and getting Building a lot a of relationship with the docs who can, and exactly. the other clinicians who yep. you can have a conversation with because you have a relationship. Exactly. And then they can utilize our services for urgent dispatch. And so what they can do is they say, Hey, this patient called in, says there's something going on. I need you to go lay eyes on it. I can go out there. I can do a telemedicine visit with the surgeon at the patient's house. And I can say, hey, doc, this doesn't look that acute. Or, hey, this does look like a problem. And we've mitigated, you know, several dozen probably admissions that would have happened uh, where we're able to make changes in their their plan of care at home uh, and, and handle it that way. So that that's something that I never would have expected a paramedic to be involved in, right? You know, a facial plastic surgery follow-up. But that's, that's amazing that work. And, and I guarantee if you run the numbers on that, the impact, the, the cost avoidance there or the demand destruction there uh, on the acute care system more than pays for the work. Definitely. And the other metric we, you know, we really care about is that patient access to care and patient satisfaction. And I can tell you, these patients love having access to someone like Dr. Welsh mentioned. I meet these people at bedside. 
you know, downtown. So they're, they're expecting it 24 hours after discharge. I'm at their house. And then I do a couple of weekly visits following that. If everything looks good, we'll discharge them from our, our program. So um, patients love it. They love having access to care at home. They love having access to their care team. You know, they know their surgeon and being able to see me and then jump on an iPad and, and chat with their surgeon is something that's really been uh, very beneficial for the team. Uh, just phenomenal work. And it's great to hear about another large health system based program that's really been making those type of impacts for and some some really vulnerable patients that I think probably appreciate it quite a bit and are benefiting from it in a lot of different ways. But I thank both of you for hopping on here today, uh, talking about the work you folks are doing. It's, you know, the Cleveland Clinic is obviously one of those institutions that people look to as a, as a role model and an example for innovation and for, you know, forward thinking care. So the fact that you're working in the MIH space and you're doing such great things, um, people want to hear about it. So thank you for hopping on and sharing it. Entirely our pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. Very much appreciate it. And that's integrated the Community Paramedicine Podcast.